Um, got a photo to show you at the start. This photo of um, me, 12 years old. I think it's my 12th birthday. Back it on the screen. Okay, bring it up. It's coming up a bit earlier. There it is. I think that's my birthday. Before school, proudly bearing my new electric guitar that I'd got. Some serious preteen puppy fat going on there. That is genuine um, Garfield the Cat wallpaper in the background, if you can make that out in the 80s. But the thing that I want to really bring to your attention is there's a picture on the wall in the background. That's my bedroom. And um, this is a print of what that, that picture was. When I was a, a kid growing up, I had a print of Caravaggio's Supper at Emmaus on my wall. And um, suffice to say, surprisingly few of my peers at the time shared my affection for Baroque period art. And I can't quite remember where this picture came from. Um, my sister is convinced I won it in a tombola. I think I bought it in a jumble sale, but anyway, it doesn't matter. For some reason, I had it on my wall, and I loved this picture. And I remember a few years um, later going to the National Gallery in London, uh, where you can see the real thing, and it's an absolute masterpiece. And hopefully you can get the gist of it here. I mean, like, it's not a masterpiece so much because it's precise and accurate. These guys don't look very much like first century Palestinians to me. They look more like Italian models, which is what they probably were. Um, but it's clear that Caravaggio has captured an electric moment in this picture. I don't know, does, does that come across? You can just see the atmosphere, like this fruit bowl. It looks like it's going to just like spill off the table any moment. If this guy's knee, you know, hits the table leg, the fruit's going to come tumbling out into us. And it's this, it's this electric moment that we read about in the Gospel of Luke. There's a story where two followers of Jesus a travelling home, dejected after the um, crucifixion, um, and they encounter the risen Jesus in that moment. And um, we're going to read it together. It's quite a long passage, so I've asked Sam um, to come and read it for us. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, 
How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he was going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while, we talked, while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Thanks, Sam. Love it. Good reading. Brilliant. Um, so in this painting, Caravaggio, he has attempted to capture that very moment where they see Jesus for who he is. And like I say, the atmosphere is electric. You can see the light of illumination um, it lights up the faces of um, the pilgrims and Jesus here. But you notice that, that this guy, the servant, he is both physically and spiritually, is as though spiritually he's in the shade. He's oblivious to the fact that he is waiting on the creator of the universe. It's beautiful stuff. Amazing picture, amazing story. And whilst it's not technically a parable, it's not, you know, it's not a parable, it's an account, it's a narrative of what happened I believe that the way Luke tells this story, he's making a point just in the way he tells it. The equivalent version of this story in Mark's gospel is like three lines long. Classic Mark, Bosch, just tells a story. But Luke, he lingers and he explores the characters and he unpacks some of the dialogue and some of their emotions. And over the years, this story, and in fact, this painting um, has, had, has come to have a profound meaning and impact on my life. It's spoken to me of what the journey of following Jesus is sometimes like. And, and as I you know, thought ahead in the last few months, I'm like, oh, this will be my first Sunday as senior pastor of this church. There was absolutely zero doubt in my mind and what passage um, I'd love to speak about today. And I've got a couple of observations that I want to highlight in particular about this story that I think reveals something to us about the nature of the journey of faith. So the first one, I think, is that this story shows us that faith is sometimes complex, the mystery of faith. At the start of the story, these characters, they are disillusioned, disillusioned and dejected. They've got basically no faith. And then Jesus shows up alongside them on the road, and they don't even recognize him, which it's a bit weird, by the way, isn't it? Don't you think, does anybody think that is a bit weird? Apparently, the guy Cleopas, traditionally, um, people think that he was Jesus' uncle. So why didn't they recognise Jesus? Why were they kept from recognising him, as it says in verse 16? Was it because they were blinded by their disillusion? Was it because the resurrected, risen body of Jesus in its eternal glory looked different? Was it because Jesus intentionally prevented them from from seeing him, them, him, actually, 
um, the painting gives us the real answer to that question. You see, Jesus has shaved his beard off. So that's what's going on. <laughs> Only joking. But what's clear is that once they do see him, they reflect back and they ask themselves this question. Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? And so when they reflected back, like in hindsight, they were like, we didn't have any faith. But then kind of like at the same time, we did. Our hearts were burning. They didn't have any faith at the same time they did. And I think there's a few occasions like this in the Bible where it seems that you can have no faith and loads of faith all at the same time. Like there's a story of the father, um, a father in Mark's gospel who, who asks Jesus to heal his son. And Jesus says, do you believe that I can do this? And do you remember what the father says? He says, I believe, help my disbelief. I don't know if you've ever prayed um, a prayer like that or felt like that. You know, perhaps when, when somebody tells you about a health problem that they've got or a very difficult situation and you listen sympathetically before saying something like, well, oh, it would be great to pray about that. And you do, but in your heart, you don't expect to see much change. Or perhaps there's a beloved person in our lives and we, we long to see them come to faith. And even though we know technically God is big enough to do it and it's possible, we just can't see how it's going to happen, how breakthroughs going to come. If I'm honest, right now there's a situation going on in my life involving somebody that I care about where this is really where I'm at. I believe, would you help, Lord, my disbelief? And what I love about this picture is that it kind of captures that knife-edge moment where belief and disbelief mingle in the same space, where hope invades and interrupts despair. Um, I read a piece by an art journalist, a lady called Kelly Grovia, um, who um, she, she was talking about this picture, and she says this, listen to these words, Caravaggio captures a mystical threshold in that immeasurable instant between revelation and evaporation. And listen to these words. She says, it's poised as it is between our perishable realm and the eternal one that lies beyond. To use um, vineyard language, this picture captures what Bible scholar Derek Morphy, one of our vineyard Bible scholars, would describe as a moment of breakthrough where the now of the kingdom of God interrupts and exists within the same space as the not yet, or, or what we might describe as the mystery of the kingdom of God. Jesus taught about this mystery. Sometimes he explained that the kingdom of God would be something that we would experience. He said, it's now, it's here, it's within you, it's in your midst. But he also, at other times, explains that the kingdom would be something that is also yet to come in the future. And these two realities, that's a tension, isn't it? There's a bit of a mystery to that. And in some denominations and in some parts of the church, they attempt to resolve this mystery by insisting that it, that, you know, it should always be now. In other words, our prayers should always be answered. Miracles should always happen if we just have enough faith or if we just pray the right way. And then in other parts of the church, the pendulum swings totally the other way and people just you know, are resigned to like, oh, we can't really expect God to do anything. Like One day he'll come again, but until then... We can't expect God to move. And in the vineyard, we are amongst those in the wider church who, who inhabit a space somewhere in between those two things, where we, we, we inhabit the radical middle of what we call the now and the not yet, in that tension between the two, holding the belief that that is the best way of understanding both Scripture 
and our experience of faith in God's kingdom. And that can be hard and that can be uncomfortable when we long to see a moment of breakthrough, when we long for our faces to be illuminated by the revelation of seeing, oh, this is what God's up to, this is his plan, but yet we have to continue to walk in the shade and not know what's coming next like this guy. And we find ourselves asking questions like, when and why? And where is this all going? And that might be where you are at right now. But if we didn't have the waiting and the why, if it was all now, 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 then it wouldn't really be faith, would it? The mystery in itself, it reminds us that faith is a journey. And that's the other thing that I want to talk about today, the journey of faith. I love the fact that this story happened as they walked along a road. It points to the reality, I think, that that faith is not static. It's a journey with Jesus. You know, uh, at times... I've reflected on this story and, and, and considered the journey that these followers had been on you know, in their life. They had probably grown up as Jews um, in, in that first century, studying the scriptures with their family and like their family and like the people around them, they were longing for Israel's Messiah to come. And they had um, encountered Jesus At some point, um, they perhaps heard him speaking in a synagogue somewhere or they had watched him perform a miracle and they, and it says, they had hoped, they said, we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel and they had followed Jesus. They'd followed him all the way to Jerusalem but then they had witnessed him fail, humiliated on a cross. But it was then, it was at that point in their story when their hope was at its lowest that Jesus stepped in and walked alongside them. And it says, on the roadside, as they walked along, he, he brought back up all those scriptures, you know, the scriptures and the stories that they'd read since they were children, the ones they knew by heart. And it says in verse 27, and beginning with Moses and the prophets, he took them back to the Old Testament He explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And as Jesus did that, as he walked and he talked, the pilot light inside of them, that little flicker of faith that had all but gone out, it started to burn because there was something about this guy. And so they lingered around him and then they begged him to hang around for supper and talk more. And then right at the end of the story, They saw him for who he was and their lives and their story was changed forever. And I don't know if you notice, there's a parallel between this little story of the two travellers on the road and the big story of the Bible. Um, Later on in the Bible, in the book of Romans, Paul explains that um, he said, Jesus, he talks about how Jesus came and he says, Romans chapter five, verse six, you see, at just the right time, When we were still powerless, that's when Jesus came and he walked on earth and he died for the the sake of the world, for the ungodly. While we were still sinners, he says, Christ died for us. And so, you know, just like their personal story, the defining moment of the big story of the Bible, the hinge of, of the Bible, the big plot twist of that story is the moment in the same way when Jesus stepped into the story. When all hope was lost, 
the author and the creator of the whole thing, he arrived and he revealed that all the promises, that all the predictions of the prophets, all the stories of Moses and all the other patriarchs, all of it pointed to him, that he was the way, the truth, the life and salvation. It had always been about him, this story, and it always would be. And the pilgrims learned as they walked along the road with him, it was only you know, afterwards when they looked back that they realised, yeah, he was there all along. He had a plan all along. You know, it makes me think, you know, think about your own, if you're a follower of Jesus, think about your own story. Sometimes it's only when we look back, isn't it, that we see that he had a plan to step into our lives, to save us, to restore us, and to lead us into his calling. I was, I've been reflecting on this, on my own personal story quite a bit recently. Um, you get it, because this is, this is the first Sunday of my, the new leg of my journey, taking on the senior pastor role of this church. Um, it's a little bit daunting. <laughs> a little bit. A lot of it. And when I look back at my story, part of me is like, how on earth did this happen? Like, how, who, who thought this idea up? I mean, I haven't really got time to go into detail, and many of you heard you know, some of this stuff before, but my journey was not one of a sort of a, not the quintessential example of how to raise a pastoral figure. Um, just to give you a gist of some of the outline, I grew up um, in a Catholic home. I had a belief growing up that there that there was a God, I thought, but at the same time, I don't think I had anything like what I would describe as a relationship with God. And a lot of the time, faith to me felt more like something that I was just supposed to do because grown-ups around me did it more than something I chose for myself. And also at that time, growing up, my home environment wasn't exactly optimal for raising a balanced pastoral figure. Um, It was a loving home, but it was chaotic and dysfunctional at times. Um, the atmosphere in those early years was dominated by the presence of um, acute alcohol addiction. My mum experienced that as well as um, bipolar disorder. She was in and out of um, mental hospital numerous times. And then she also had terminal cancer, something she died to um, in my, when I was in my teens. And that kind of, I guess it took a bit of a toll on me, all of that. And by the time I reached young adulthood, I was conditioned, I'd say, to be quite a fearful, anxious um, person, um, insecure, and I made some bad choices in early adulthood, really just looking for um, affirmation and security in the wrong places. And then, and then I went off to university, and I remember learning to my utter dismay on the first night that my roommate was one of those weird, charismatic Christians. You know the kind. There's some of them in this room, I'm sure. (laughs) And the first, he had like the WWJD bracelet, the fierce look in his eye, the lot. And the first night, he came up to me and he said, don't think for a second that I haven't been put next door to you by God to help you find your way to God. And I was like, oh, this is going to be the worst year of my life. He was overbearing, he was irritating, he was 100% correct. And he's one of my closest friends today. And um, I remember he started coming to Vineyard, and the first time he brought me to Trent, though, my main reflection was, 
That was super weird. And I didn't come back for about a year. <laughs> By the way, if you've just been brought here for the first time today, <laughs> please don't wait a year. We're not that weird. But, you know, it was a slow burn. Um, skipping forward, I remember as far as actually like getting involved in church, I remember the day that my wife, Abby, suggested that I do the discipleship program here at Trent. And I said to her, that's for people who don't know what they want to do with their lives. And she was like, bingo, it's you. <laughs> to cut a long story short, I guess I could stress that my journey hasn't been textbook, you know? It's featured twists and unpredictable turns. And even now, you know, I don't, I don't know what the future holds. I feel daunted by where we're all going and what happens yet next. Yet, I realise when I look back, alongside the ups and the downs, hasn't my heart been burning as I've walked along the way? Do you know what I mean? Like, my heart, I remember when I, when I look back, my heart burns. One night when I was a little child, I remember waking up terrified in the middle of the night with a nightmare, and I cried out to God, and I just prayed the Lord's Prayer because that was all I really knew, and I remember the fear just drained away. I remember my heart burned one time, one day when during that era where my home felt particularly unsafe and chaotic and mum was sick and she was on her way into hospital and dad was on the edge and my, sis, my big sister was away at uni and this Christian friend of the family just showed up on our doorstep out of the blue and suddenly everything felt calm and safe. I hate to admit it, but my heart burned a little bit when that crazy Christian friend come bounding up to me, declaring that he'd been sent into my life by God that first night. And it burned during that discipleship year as I served this church on a million rotors and loved every bit of it and began to realise this is what I think I'm called to do. And in recent years, my heart has continued to burn um, as friends from here have gone off on adventures, planting churches around the country and yet all the time I felt more and more settled and more and more love and affection for this local church family. And my heart has burned as people have come to faith in this church. And as we've baptised, I mean, how many people have we baptised recently? Loads. And as we've sit, just seen God do incredible things in incredible ways. And a while ago, um, I was just reflecting on this journey. Um, through the years as I sort of, we prepared for this transition. And I remember I had my Bible open at my desk and I was reading this story of the road to Emmaus. And it struck me that though my journey is still unfolding and though, you know, I don't know what the future holds, I have come to recognise that he, he uses the journey to prepare us for what's to come, doesn't he? Amidst the mystery and the chaos and the disappointment, he shapes us and he guides us and he uses it. Not all of it is good, but he uses even the bad things. He is there with us, whether we realise it or not, and he's refining us and disciplining us so that when the moment of revelation does come and we see what's next, we're ready to go. And so I sat there reading this story and, I, and it just occurred to me, you know, the road to Emmaus is how it is. It's how this journey of faith works so often. And I'm kind of embarrassed that it took about 30 years for that penny to drop. Um, but I remember, you know, I was sat there in this moment of realisation with the Bible in my lap, looking at this story, and I look up at the wall on my, in, in where, you know, by my desk, and there on the wall, of course, what's there? It's this battered, 
Caravaggio print that's been in my bedroom since I was eight years old or however old I was. It's followed me from house to house. It's hung on my wall. It's been there all the time looking down on me. And it was only when I looked back and I saw this picture had been there all along, that Jesus had been there all along and that my heart had been burning as I walked along the road. The road to Emmaus is how it is. Now, around about, um, just got one more story before we finish. Around about the time that I was, that picture, um, I was, I remember one Saturday afternoon, I was playing in the living room um, um, and my dad walks into the living room and he hands me a bucket and he says, right, we're going to go and do some decorating around my friend's house. You're going to come and help me and you're going to need the bucket. So, at the time, I was looking forward to an afternoon of just like playing Lego and listening to the football on the radio. So this was all a bit of a blow, like enforced manual labour. And so I was quite grumpy in the car as we headed across town um, until we pull up and we start walking through these back streets towards this guy's house. And he lived near um, the home of the mighty Luton Town Football Club, Kenilworth Road, their amazing stadium. Um, and in those days, Luton were in the top flight. They were in the first division of football. Um, and actually, this season, they have just been promoted back there. Come on, Luton. <laughs> but anyway, Kenilworth Road, it sits within this kind of really dense area of terraced housing. And all the streets and the alleyways um, on match day, they're just full of supporters. And it turned out there was a match kicking off in, in you know, that, that time. And so it was so exhilarating because we were walking along and there were just all these people chanting and singing. And I was obsessed with football at the time. I was always asking my dad to take me to a, a game. Um, but he said I wasn't old enough to go. You know, in the 80s, like, it wasn't that safe. Anyway... But everybody's singing and chanting, and I'm just thinking, wow, this is amazing. And this, this guy is obviously so lucky to live next door to the football ground. Anyway, then we turn around the corner, and all of a sudden, the back of the ground, the, the, the turnstiles are there in front of me, and people are going in. And to my utter amazement, my dad just steps ahead of me, and he walks up to a turnstile, and he turns back to me, and he says, come on, we're going in. And so I was like... My heart was thumping as I clattered through this turnstile, still got the bucket in my hand. <laughs> and we spill out onto the terrace. And um, it's the 80s, so there's no seats. Everybody's just stood. And immediately I realised there's a problem because I'm, you know, like nine years old or whatever, four foot six, there's all men everywhere and I can't see the ground until I look down and see what's in my hand. And so, and I looked at my dad... And I put the bucket on the ground and instantly I stepped up and grew a foot in stature. And the thing that I feel really God has put on my heart to share with us today is that, yes, the journey of faith is a mystery. Sometimes, you know, we don't get to see where we're going, do we? It's a journey where we don't know the destination, but our Heavenly Father does. And he has good things in store. And sometimes he gives us things to carry on the journey. And we don't see it at the time. But it's the thing that we're going to need later on. You know, you might be experiencing something going on in your life right now where the thing that you're carrying, it may feel a bit like a bucket, a trial, a challenge, a disappointment. It may not be a good thing. But in years to come... God finds a way of it becoming the thing that you stand on. 
He has a way of it becoming the thing that you see from. Faith and trust that's been proved and refined by experience and is strong enough to stand on. A vantage point of experience that you can actually see from and you can turn to other people who are perhaps experiencing the same and saying, don't worry, I can see where this ends. You know, I think of... um, People in our church, there's a couple in our church, many of you know them, who years ago, they, they nearly lost everything to alcoholism. But decades on, they have led literally hundreds of people to freedom and many to the Lord through leading Alcoholics Anonymous groups. Their experience has become the thing they stand on and see from. Or is it a lady in the life of the church who experienced terrible abuse as a child? And she spent the last 20 years at our, at our church seeking out those who sustained the same and helping them get healed of the wounds and trauma. And I could go on and on and on because whatever we encounter, God has this way of bringing us through it until there comes a day where we turn to others around us and say, don't worry, I've been and I've seen here before. God is good and God is with us. For others of you, Um, as I'm sharing this story today, the thing that you're carrying may not feel so much like a burden, but you really resonate with that idea of the burning in your heart. Perhaps you sense that there has, you know, God's got something for you ahead and you long for revelation, you long for clarity of exactly what it is. And maybe, you know, in the midst of the uncertainty or disappointment or the setbacks or doubts, the uncertainty means that, you know, the only thing that's flickering really is just the pilot light. But I want to suggest, if that's you, that's sometimes how faith works. As John so often has said to us, we don't know what the future holds, but we know who holds the future. 